Hey, it's Brandon, the host of Transform Your Workplace. This episode is sponsored by Ladder. Ladder was founded by LeBron James and Arnold Schwarzenegger to change the way supplements are made. They work with the top scientists to formulate a line of clean performance products. And unlike any other supplements, every batch is tested by a third party to verify the highest standards for quality and safety. And I know when I got my package from Ladder, I was blown away by the quality of the packaging. It felt really premium and the taste was great too. I personally love the hydration packet and I can't wait to try the other products too. Ladder's goal is to help you unlock your best in any situation. Right now, that means access to special offers and expert advice from their community. Use code BETTEREVERYDAY for 30% off everything site-wide at ladder.sport. That's better every day for 30% off at ladder.sport. This episode is also sponsored by RIMS. RIMS is a global organization dedicated to the profession of risk management. For nearly 60 years, RIMS has delivered the latest strategies and resources that allow risk professionals to grow, innovate, and succeed in any business. RIMS works with the industry leaders to produce content and online training that business professionals turn to. Topics include business continuity, cyber risk, risk management techniques, the fundamentals of insurance, and more. There's also a private members-only site where people can discuss sensitive issues and get honest answers. Members have been leaning on each other as we all navigate this global pandemic. If you're concerned about the safety of your employees and the sustainability of your organization, you need the resources and connections RIMS provides. Learn more at http colon forward slash forward slash go dot rims dot org forward slash transform. You can save 25% off a year long membership. And now on to the show. Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. I am Brandon Laws, your host. Thanks for tuning in today. Today, as I as I speak, it's May 26th, 2020, and I'm still uh, stuck at home. Uh, things are starting to open up around me, and I don't know if you can relate to that, uh, but over here in Oregon, some counties are starting to open up. I'm going to play it safe, though. You know, I got young kids, and uh, my wife and I, we're fine staying home, so we are just kind of hanging out and staying away from big crowds and, and people, so... Uh, things have been okay. I do want to interact with some people, but I'd rather be safe than sorry. So hope you're doing the same and hope you're doing well. Today's episode I'm really excited about. I've been actually hanging on to this interview for a while. Uh, there's never a perfect time to release uh, an episode, but I had a conversation with Carolina Castaneda del Rio. She's the chief operating officer at Hacienda CDC. Uh, they're a Zenium client. And um, Carolina has a really interesting story. She immigrated from Mexico to the United States. And so she gives her kind of background on being a Mexican immigrant and just work-related culture shocks that she experienced in her early days. And then we talk about, you know, correct terminology, uh, Latino, Latinx. I ask her some questions that, you know, I was curious about as far as like, you know, how, how do you reference those who have immigrated from other areas? Um, we talk about implicit bias. We talk about common uh, questions that come up in, in the HR world as far as, um, you know, people with different cultures. So 
you're gonna, I think you're gonna love this episode. I think I learned a lot during this episode. Carolina was an open book. She was great. And I, I think you're really going to love her. So let me know how you liked it. Go to LinkedIn, send me a direct message and I'll, I'll make sure to put Carolina's LinkedIn uh, profile in there in the show notes so you can reach out to her and tell her how much you loved her on the podcast. So thanks for tuning in today and I hope you are safe. Be well. Hey, Carolina, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you on. Thank you so much for inviting me, Brandon. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I am so, so excited. We're going to talk holistically about diversity, specifically the Latino community, and you're going to educate me. So I'm really excited about this. And we're going to talk about implicit bias. We're going to cover all that. We couldn't talk about that enough on this podcast. But first, I want to start like at the very beginning. So you're from Mexico. I want to hear your background. You told me just before we started recording that you immigrated from Mexico to the United States by the time you were 30. So give me a sense for your background and what that whole experience was like. Yes, I immigrated to the U.S. in my adult life. So I was born in Mexico City. And then my family moved to another state called Guanajuato. And I was raised in Guanajuato for most of my life. And I arrived to the U.S. almost eight years ago as an adult uh, through an academic exchange with Southern Oregon University, where I did the second year of my master's degree. And that's how I landed in Medford, Oregon. Really? Yeah. So it was college that brought you up to the United States. It was college. And it was an interest that I had to live abroad. And the easiest way to do it was through an academic exchange. Yeah. And then did you have any family up here? Or were you really the first generation of any part of your family that came to the United States? I have an uncle who lives in Houston. And then I have like half family living in El Paso. But no, really, my parents live in Guanajuato. My brother lives in Monterrey, Mexico. So I was the first one to get here on my family of origin, I would say. When you're in Mexico, I'm curious if any of your family members or even friends had is there appeal to immigrate to the United States, either for education or for work? I'm curious what culturally, how that's perceived. It's different. So I would say there's different realities. And in the culture of Mexico, I would say I have to disclose that I come from a particular background and history. So I was born, as I said, in Mexico and in a middle class family, I would say. Mm-hmm. I got exposure to English since I was five years old in private schools, that type of thing. So that already impacts my experience of how I experienced being Mexican, how I experienced the immigration area, and then how I experienced my life in the U.S. So that being said, in the middle class in Mexico, as I have experienced it, it's not as common to say to live abroad. Like what is common is that when you're in college, you sometimes do academic exchanges, but it's not like Mm -hmm. as common. Not everybody wants to do it. And certainly not everybody wants to go and live in somewhere else at all. You know, the place where you're at and your family and friends and moving to another country is just a big ordeal. In communities that have like less means, financial means, 
I would say what I saw from my perspective working with people on living in extreme poverty in Mexico is that it was common practice that was like a way to address financial stress that people would, like communities, entire communities would practice that. And actually, Guanajuato has a high migration rate and the people who stay, you can see whole communities being desolated, like all the really? male, young male people going to the U.S. and then women and families and elders yeah. uh, stay. In my case, so it, was, it was something that yeah. I wanted to do. I'm really curious how closely, you know, you stay in touch with everybody. Yeah, I talked with my parents every week, I would say, or every other week. So we still like stay in touch very closely. I visit Mexico once or twice a year, mostly Great. once. Let's talk about the work related stuff. I'm curious from a <laughs> cultural standpoint, like, did you get a chance to, you said you came up here for, I think you said graduate school in Medford, Oregon. Mm -hmm. Is that right? So yes. I imagine you went to school in Mexico and probably worked a little bit. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Or did you not work mm -hmm. at all? Okay, so you worked. Yes, I, know. I worked. Yes, I would say half my career I worked in Mexico and then okay. the other half I've been working here. So give me some <laughs> perspective. What are some of the cultural differences or cultural shocks to you when it comes to relating work in Mexico versus work in the United States? Yes, and this is also from my perspective as a woman. And I studied psychology in Mexico and family therapy and a master's mm. in behavioral sciences. So I would say that my experience in Mexico was a little difficult in terms of psychology. It's not a career that is very well paid for social services in general. Yeah. I'm also a woman. So what I found in Mexico was a difficulty like moving up the ladder. Oh, yeah. And there were not many options. A lot of the culture that I experienced were very tied to who you know and your connections and not very transparent systems of promotions. I had to do a ton of like jump a lot of hoops to get just a little raise. When I wanted to do my master's degree, I had little flexibility and requested support. And the highest level of support that I got was one hour a week to leave early on Friday so that I could go study full time on the weekends and things like that. So when I got here, and the other thing is like, for example, sick days or I remember I was working with families of kids with disabilities in a yeah. rehabilitation center down there. And if I were sick, I would just like come in. Like it, there's no option. It's like really they would ask me to wear like a mask if I'm like actively like coughing yeah. when we have kids that are, you know, sick. Oh, and gosh. to me, it didn't make sense. So when I come here and then I... I'm not feeling well, whatever, it's fine. And and people tell me, oh, no, it's fine. Go rest. You're fine. But it's like, what? And most people here are like, stay home. We do not want you to get us sick. Right. To me, it's like, oh, people here are very kind. You yeah. know? And then later I learned that it's about like, yeah, no, not spreading, you know, the thing. And kindness, too, is just those considerations and then taking like four hours or there's like this culture or the systems are built for when you get sick. And in Mexico, not so much, or at least in the organization where I worked, it was not like that. And you're used to, and I was used to just power through, like I wouldn't miss school because yeah. I was not feeling good. I would not miss a day of work because I'm not feeling good. I'm just like working, working, working. So that general culture of hard working is based yeah. on that. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because totally don't mean to the stereotype at all. And I guess it sort of is, but like the hardworking culture is truth to that. I'm sure not every 
person from Mexico is super hardworking, but I think generally that's how you're sort of brought up. And I've worked over the years with several people who I'm just like, I'm blown away by their ability to work hard, seem to have just high energy. And I swear they don't ever take breaks. Mm-hmm. And I think to your point about the, the sick day thing, yeah, that must be where it's from. And I had no real idea. Yeah. And another time where I like found that or evidence of that was in my former position where I worked in Medford, there was at some point a report on productivity. I know that I work, whatever. I don't have a sense of, oh, I'm working too much or too little yeah. in comparison to others until I saw that report. And I saw that I had seen twice mm. as many patients as others. Oh my goodness. And I was like <laughs> appalled. I was like, oh my God, I had no idea. And it could be reporting stuff, you know, But I was in a team of six people Mm -hmm. and the person who reported the most, I was still seeing twice as many people. That's incredible. And it's funny because where you came from, it's normalized, right? But Mm -hmm. then you come here Mm -hmm. and the hardworking culture of of probably what you experience, it's not so ingrained in the United States culture necessarily. I mean, we're hard workers, but probably not to the extent that you saw. So it is interesting, the shock Mm -hmm. that you saw and it required data to prove that. (laughs) So fascinating. For me to be aware of that at all, like I just assumed everyone was in the same boat. Yeah. Did anything in you change like your values or, or anything like that after you saw some of the data and obviously being here in the United States? I don't know how long you've been in the United States for. I don't want to necessarily put an age on you because you've already disclosed you moved over at age 30. (laughs) So I'll just say this, like in the time that you've been here, Has anything changed about the way you look at work? Yeah. So first of all, I don't mind. I'm 37. I've been here for seven years. Oh, you're only a couple Uh, years older than me. We're right around the same. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For me, when I just got this, like, there was this job structure based on tiers, right? So I would like easily, like super fast run through all the four tiers of that position and got a promotion in the first three years of working there. So to me, it was like, wow, finally, my work is recognized. I have a clear sense of where I'm going. And it was just easy for me to achieve those like milestones at work and then feeling supported. Another cultural shock was when I was having this idea about doing like a radio show in Spanish about mental health. And my supervisor said, how can I support you? And I was like, "Ah." What? Are you not going to tell me all the ways that I will miss in productivity or where is the money coming from? And well, this supervisor was exceptional, right? But she's also like that level of support I had not seen before. Really? Um, So you kind of realized the power of the team rather than just working hard as an individual? Yes, the power of the team. I saw a lot of collaboration. That's great. And again, I just didn't know if this is an Oregon thing or it was the organization thing or it's an America thing, but just like that collaboration and interagency collaboration was new to me. I don't think that's everywhere and it's certainly not all employers. I mean, that's sort of why we started this podcast. For example, we want people to work as teams and build great cultures. And so we have a lot of conversations around that. You know, I think it's ingrained in a lot of organizations and certainly in Oregon, I think there's a lot of leading employers. So that's probably what you experience. But yeah, Mm -hmm. everybody shares that same value. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say it was a bittersweet thing because in one sense, I realized that other people would see the value that I brought to the table. And also it was sad in terms of like, oh, I didn't notice how hard I was working and somehow made me feel sad. Really? Wow. 
yeah, it's like, oh my God, like I had no idea how hard I was working. Did you feel any burnout or, I mean, you felt sad, but it was only when you realized like, wow, I'm killing myself basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't have to. And oh, yeah, so, there's no expectations around that because your peers are not working nearly as hard or not producing yeah, as much. Yeah, Incredible. yeah it, it was like a weird feeling to me and also very empowering. Did you, in some ways, did you but, feel cheated you know. or did you just have an aha for yourself? Like, oh, wow, I don't need to work as hard. That's probably a hard question to answer. A, <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if it was not I don't have to work as hard, but more like I worked super hard and I didn't know that that was more than enough. Yeah. Do you think it's like giving mm-hmm. you upside though by working that hard? Like, wow, my career has progressed. I mean, because we can get to your role now. You're a COO for Hacienda yeah. CDC. And so at age 37, to me, that's incredible. You're in a C-suite position, making a lot of progress in the community and doing excellent work. So, you know, if I'm on on the outside looking in, I'm saying, wow, you worked so hard early on. Yeah, you got burned out, but maybe that's got you to where you're at what do you think yeah like i finally when i got this job i actually felt like (laughs) oh i finally get to where i wanted to be and when i was in mexico i felt and even in the u.s initially like i felt like i was working very hard and i had two graduate degrees and i just wasn't making it you know yeah so it was getting to this position is like oh finally i feel like I'm actually putting my skills at work and that others see the value that I bring to the table. Yeah. Finally can see it more tangibly. Yeah. Fascinating. I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about the cultural aspect of, you know, you being from Mexico, coming into Oregon, where there's a lot of white people, but there's also a lot of Mexican immigrants. So first off, I want to ask you a question that's it's cringeworthy for me because I think I don't ask this question a lot. And I think a lot of people aren't really comfortable with it. But we hear these terms of Mexican, Latino, Hispanic. I don't know which is correct. So you're going to have to educate me and help me become <laughs> more comfortable with this. But what do you refer to yourself as? And what would you tell people who struggle like me to understand the differences between the communities? That is a very interesting thing. Let me tell you that I became a Latina when I came to the U.S. Before that, I was just Carolina. Carolina, Really? Okay. Okay. Identified as Mexican. And that's it. Yeah. Latina is not a term that I use in Mexico. So that's the first new identity that I was put on was alien. And then the second one was Latina. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, alien. I mean, I'm an immigrant alien, according to the the US government forms. That makes sense. But us, you know, regular civilians don't refer. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) So I was like, wow, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that now I identify as Latina. And there's a lot of, like, discussion around Latina or Latino or Latinx. To include all the like the LGBTQ communities yes. and we have a gendered language in Spanish and but this is also an Anglicism. This is also a term that has initiated in the newer generations of the Latinx community in the US. And in Mexico it doesn't make a lot of sense. In the Spanish language, Latino is a gender neutral okay. word. Oh it is. Oh, okay. It I is. see. Yes. But in the United States is Latinx the gender neutral term Mm -hmm. because latino would be the male dominated and latina would be the female right 
That's really confusing. Yes. <laughs> well, when it you're is, when you're going back and forth between Mexico and the United States, that to me that's really confusing. But I also haven't so, done a ton yes. of research on it. Right. And honestly, it's when I get all these questions about what is the correct term, I usually say is the correct term for now. Because as you know, culture it, changes yeah. and the terms will change. And it is important that we are comfortable with uncertainty because sometimes we will say the wrong term and then there's yeah. a new term and we need to get used to the fact that the terms change. Yeah. Well, and, the, and I think the hard part for somebody like me is I don't want to make a mistake. This mm. isn't just me. It's I think it's everybody. I will shut my mouth and just not I won't guess because I don't want to offend anybody. Like so for example, in our time talking and I even just mentioned it a second ago, but like the word Hispanic, you haven't mentioned it at all. I mentioned it, but when I grew up, you know, I had a lot of Mexican families go to school with me and I think we referred to them as Hispanic a lot of times, but I don't hear that anymore. What's changed about that? Is that even the correct term or is mm -hmm. it offensive? You know, I don't know if it is offensive. I think it is offensive for some people. Mm. I don't have the background, the history here to speak to why it would be offensive in my case. Yeah. I think that what is the thing is that Hispanic refers to the people who speak Spanish. Oh, I so see. So it doesn't include. So, for example, second, third generation Latinx who are still identified with a Latino culture, yeah, but don't sense. speak Spanish. That excludes them. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. That also excludes people from countries like Brazil yep. who don't speak Spanish. They speak Portuguese, but they are still considered from the Latin American countries. That makes sense. So we're moving to more language around where you're at from a regional standpoint versus what language you speak. Mm -hmm, exactly. And then the culture that you... Is that a good way to look at it? Okay. That's one way because, yeah. then, again, the people who are born here who are U.S. American citizens and still identify as Latinx, mm, okay. but they were born here. What do you say to somebody like me who is uncertain most of the times? Is it okay? Is it appropriate to ask somebody how they like to be referred or, I mean, just engage in conversation about it? Like what's appropriate in your mind? So I would say, first of all, think about why are you asking the question? That's true. So if I ask you, so, hi, Brandon. Yeah. How do you want to be referred to? You're like, what sense? I, mean, I probably want you to say, I want you to say my name. I don't really care, like white, Caucasian. Like, I don't even know how that would come up. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> just exactly. say my name. <laughs> exactly. I mean, just think, what is the purpose of the question? I don't know. They right? ask it on applications and they ask it in, like, when you get your driver's license. I don't understand it either, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in a conversation yeah. with another human being, you would probably not ask, how do you True. want to be referred? Yeah, it does come up every once in a while, though. And so that's why I'm asking the question only to educate the audience that is listening. Mm -hmm. And myself, if it ever, for whatever reason comes up, for me, it doesn't ever come mm -hmm. up. And I'm able to get out of mm -hmm. conversations like that. But I think it's still okay to be should be comfortable for us to talk about it without feeling like we're going to offend yeah. somebody, right? Right? Yeah. Just being aware that it may be sensitive for other people. So first, it's always about the context, yeah. right? And the education is just about also just considering why are you asking? And then, for example, you can ask something like, what is your ancestry? Yeah, that's good. And then, again, it's important to say, why are you asking? Because a lot of people would ask based on how someone looks like. Sure. Right? Yep. So if I don't look white, then it's like, oh, my God, like, I want to know where this person is. So yeah. they ask, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Philadelphia. No, no, really. Where are you really Where's your from? ancestors from? Or where's your family from? Where's your first, second, third generation from? Is that, would that be a better way to ask it? You can ask, 
I think the better way to ask is what is your ancestry? Yeah. Because still, you're not making an assumption that mm -hmm. the family is not from here. Their parents could have been from here. And I mean, I don't know. What is your ancestry, Brandon? You know what's interesting? And nobody would ask me. Visibly, I'm white. But my family's lineage is from Syria. And nobody would know that. And nobody would think to ask me that. Mm -hmm. But it's something my family's really proud of. And they, I think it was early 1900s. I think it was my grandma's father immigrated over to the United States. And so we share some of this, you know, celebrations of that culture every once in a while. And it's, you know, as we have kids down the line, it sort of goes away. And because we're a mix of a lot of things now, I like talking about it. I don't mind talking about it, mm -hmm, you know, but mm -hmm. I look white. So right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I would say yes. I mean, if I were to ask you, where are you from? And then you say, okay, I'm from America or Oregon. Born, I, I don't born know. and raised in Hillsborough, Oregon. <laughs> in Hillsborough, Oregon. And then I say, well, no, but your parents. Yeah. Hillsborough, Oregon. <laughs> what about your grandparents? Like, yeah. Same area, but it was before them. So I'm right. like, I'm way down the line. But no, no, that's yeah. what I would say that the point here on the education is just ask, think about it before you ask yeah. another person. Think what is the purpose of the question? Why am I wondering where this person is from? And then, yes, you can ask about the ancestry, mm -hmm. but it could be very, very long time ago. You don't know. Yeah. And be careful about making an assumption just based well, on how yeah, someone that's, looks that's like. That's absolutely true. It's like you said earlier, somebody might ask that question because of how they look, even though, exactly. you know, they were born and raised in Portland or New York or whatever it may be. And it, it could have been a couple of generations down the line that they'd come from a different country. So your point is a mm -hmm. good one. I like that. Like, what's the point of the question in the first place? I think some people are just really curious and love you know, history mm -hmm. and geography and cultures and are fascinated by it. I'm not necessarily mm -hmm. comfortable asking those questions. So I usually stay away from them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I ask someone and again, my experience is different being raised in Mexico. For example, when I went to school, people would ask me, look, so how do you do it in Mexico? And I didn't mind. I didn't mind to be the person who they asked these questions to, but I didn't understand. And yeah. then I hear from people who were born and raised in the U.S. and they hate to be like pinpointed in the classroom. So what about the Latinos? What do they do? Yeah. You know, but my experience as an immigrant, an adult immigrant is very different. So I had to understand that we're born here. I don't mind, but they do mind. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. This is good information. Hey, guys, it's Brandon here, your host of Transform Your Workplace. And I wanted to say that today's episode is sponsored by Pat Live. Did you know that 76% of customers hang up if they don't reach a live person? I mean, that's insane. And 85% of customers won't call back after an unanswered call. Stop forfeiting your business to your competitors because of missed calls. PatLive offers 24-7 live answering services, so you can spend less time following up and more time growing your business. And unlike many other live answering services, they're open 365 days a year. Their friendly and professional agents are all located in the United States and provide all the benefits of a personal receptionist at a fraction of the cost. They offer fully customizable scripts and call handling experiences to fit your business needs and fit seamlessly in with your brand. Pat Live is more than just an answering service. Whether you need assistance on nights and weekends, overflow call handling, or full coverage, Pat Live has you covered. They offer everything from message taking, 
call screening and transfers to lead collection, appointment scheduling, order processing, and so much more. According to business.com, PatLive is the best answering service for small businesses in 2020. With PatLive's virtual receptionists, you can turn more callers into customers, take better care of your clients, and improve your team's ability to focus and be productive. And now, for a limited time only, PatLive is offering listeners of this podcast 15% off their regularly listed rates. This offer is only available over the phone, so give them a call now at 866-708-2507. That's 866-708-2507. And mention this podcast for more information or visit patlive.com. Make every call count with PatLive. Tell me a little bit more about the background of the Latino communities. Uh, you mentioned it's sort of regionally based. You now refer to yourself as a Latina. Give me a little history lesson of what that covers and how certain communities like to be referred to and, and maybe anything else that they identify themselves as in, in certain areas. I would say that it's mainly the Latinx or the Latino community. The Latinx community would be more the millennial generation, okay. I would say. But Latino immigrants, if I were to talk, I don't know, with people who just immigrated from Mexico or elders, and I would say, you're Latinx, they would say, what the heck is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I adjust that term depending on the audience, but the Latino community or the Latinx community, it's all the people from Latin American countries, yeah. and that's it. Okay. And yeah, so Mexico and South. Are there any differences between those communities? That Definitely. really is, oh, yeah, and I figured there would be. But are there really key differences that people from the United States, and honestly, we have a worldwide audience, so anything really important in general that you could shed light on would be amazing. I think, well, the first difference is that it's to recognize that people come from different countries. Yeah. People assume that all Latinos or immigrants are from Mexico, and there's a ton of people from other Latin American countries. We have different differences in culture, in language. We have different slangs. Not all of us speak the same terms. Like when you go to the UK, you use different words for different things. It's in that way different. I think something that a lot of Latin American countries have in common, and it's just uh, the difficulty with our governments and yeah. corruption. And I don't want to speak for sure, all of yeah. them, right? But, but some common themes that I've heard is just that oppression, yeah. right? And being marginalized as a country mm -hmm. as well as an individual. We've talked a little bit about implicit bias on this podcast, and I wanted to ask you about that since we we're on the subject of talking about your culture and people who, like you, have immigrated from Mexico to the United States. So what are some of the common biases about the Latinx population that you want to correct some of those assumptions? Well, one would be we're not all Mexicans. Mm. Not everybody who is Latinx speaks Spanish. Yeah. I think there's a lot of stereotypes about the type of work or of jobs that we can do or take. And I think we're often put in like entry level yep. positions and you will see tons of organizations who are like, oh, yeah, we're very diverse because we have a lot of Latinx employees and most of them are in entry level positions and very few or little are in leadership or the C level positions at all even nonprofit organizations that work with the Latino community sometimes are led by white people. Or many times, I would say, even like most people in leadership are mm -hmm. white. So 
I don't know what is the assumption there. I'm assuming that there's an assumption about our skill level, our education level, what we can do and where we can go professionally. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by that because, you know, it's kind of like, you know, women getting into leadership positions. I'm always, I always take like an economics bend to it. Like, what are the supply of, you know, women who have that level of education that is required for a leadership position? And, and same with, you know, a different ethnicities being in those roles as well. And so I feel like the answer is probably somewhere in the middle of like, it's a supply issue. But I also think there probably is an implicit bias between like, oh, well, they're not capable of doing it because they're better for entry level jobs. I know that has to be happening. Have you experienced any of that? And what's your perspective on what I just said? Is there a balance between those two things of maybe there's just not enough of those people around to be able to be inserted in those positions versus people actually being biased and holding people and oppressing them to these lower levels. Yeah, I think it's both. I I would say we all have implicit bias. Let's just start with that. We all have it, a good tool to know more about your bias. And so they become from implicit to explicit, and then you can do something about them is to take the Harvard implicit bias test. Can you restate that? What was that again? Harvard implicit bias test. We'll put a link up in the show notes for that. Mm-hmm. So you can take a lot of different tests on different things. Like, for example, one of them is women in professions yeah. or something like it's gender and profession. So it will tell you whether you see it as normal or not to for women to be in profession. And many women would have that bias. So we all have the bias. Okay. So, yeah, I think it's a mixture of individual bias and then all the systems, policies and practices that are around those that also reinforce yeah. that bias. So, for example, the fact that we tend to pay more or value more professions that are, you know, technology, like math and science or like technology mm-hmm. oriented. And, and the fact that the computer careers were populated mostly by women until certain point and at that time it was considered a low paying hmm. career the minute they start becoming a male profession then it started increasing the salaries for yeah. those positions so that just makes you question what is that the is bias, so right? true so it's very difficult to have equity or like parity in positions that are social work oriented that are mostly populated by women versus financial positions or technology mm-hmm. or you know so I would say that's both bias, institutionalized yep. bias, because then we assign value and then we create policies and practices of what we consider that is important and valuable, and therefore we pay for yep. that. How do we address some of those implicit biases that, like, do you call it out? Do you, even with yourself, if you know that you have implicit bias, what do you suggest for people? So I don't think a lot of people think about the biases that they have, but what, what do you suggest? Mm-hmm. Well, there will be a time where where life will let you know that you have Mm. a bias. And when that happens, don't feel offended and just think for it. Either someone will tell you something or a test, like what the test that I just shared will tell you something. So instead of responding to it with resistance, welcome this as new information for you to consider and change because any feedback that you receive, at least 10% is true. What are some of the common questions that you get? I know you obviously probably talk about this a lot. Uh, You're passionate about it. What common questions do you get from people? Or what do you see pop up in sort of the HR world, probably this audience right here, and even small business owners and leaders who are not experts in this area, 
who have a lot of questions just like I do and are, are not really comfortable exploring this necessarily, but this is probably a good start. What are some of the main questions that you get that you'd want to address here? I get questions like, oh, are you the first one to graduate from college in your oh, family? Interesting. You'd probably take offense to that, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, I would. Yeah, I <laughs> it's almost saying like well, yes, your family is not capable that. of it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, I, I do. And I also recognize that there's so many hardworking families who don't have degrees, right? Yeah. So I take offense on the stereotype. And my parents yeah. graduated from college. My grandmother graduated from college, two grandmothers. So it's like, yeah, what is the assumption? Yes, I do take offense on that. And then something that happened to me is like, I'm a therapist in Mexico and I'm licensed in Mexico. And then here there's so much need on mental health and to have like therapists who's both English and Spanish. And the paradox of just like all my education in Mexico doesn't count here for some reason or counts, but I still have to do like two more years of very underpaid hours so that I get Oregon license. Yeah. What's that about? Gosh. And that's a policy. Okay. That's a regulation. So it's not necessarily individuals. It's a policy and a regulation that is in place that even though mm -hmm. there's a high need mm -hmm. for skills like mine, I cannot perform to the full extent because there's a regulation. So when you're talking about institutional bias, would that be an example of where there's policy created around basically saying your education and skills and all the work that you did does not transfer over into what our legal system and certification process yeah. is like? Is that an example? Okay, I, I think so. And I associated the story that I'm telling myself, this is about quality that you don't consider that my education has the same level of quality. Or you yeah, assume that tough. the school system in Mexico is the same as here when you go to college and you take a major and a minor, right? So you get a little sense of yeah. both. In Mexico, if you study psychology, it's four and a half years of full-time psychology study. Really? Yeah. So actually your education should be better than what you get in the United States. Well, what if can you're, I, I mean, say? if you're focused four and a half years, yeah, I, mean, hey, I mean, I'm just calling it what, what I have to see it. Yeah, you know, I studied four and a half years of full-time psychology, and then I did a two-year degree in specializing in family therapy, and then I did a science, wow. master's in science in behavioral sciences for two years, and then I practiced in Mexico for six years, and here wow. I have to probably still do two years of hours because the supervised hours that I did in Mexico wouldn't count. I would have to do hours here of yeah. practice supervised by an Oregon therapist supervisor in order to get a license. Yeah. It's not worth Incredible. it. Incredible. And do you remember when we started the podcast and you were saying how the data showed that you were twice as productive as the next... Um, yeah. <laughs> next best yeah. peer? I think I figured out why. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got the education and the experience to back it up. So I think, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think we figured that out. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Wow. Yeah. You know, this has been such a enlightening discussion. I got to let you go because it's been over 40 minutes now. But what kind of work mm -hmm. are you doing? You're the COO at Hacienda CDC. You're doing amazing work in this community. Talk about what you're doing at Hacienda CDC, what you guys do, and you know what kind of things you're trying to do personally. Thank you. Yes. Hacienda is a community development corporation. So it's a non-for-profit organization that does mainly affordable housing. We develop affordable housing 
also we do social services. So we develop the community from a holistic perspective. We offer youth and family services. We offer programs for entrepreneurs, as well as we have an economic opportunity department with does financial coaching and support for people to become homeowners and financial coaching in general. Amazing. Keep up the great work. Mm -hmm. Where can people learn more about you and Hacienda CDC? Yes, please visit our website. It's www.haciendacdc.org and and contact us, come do a tour, visit the Portland Mercado. Portland Mercado is one of our business incubators. So if you haven't visited, it's a really nice, uh, very welcoming place where you can taste foods from different parts of Latin America. Carolina, it's been a pleasure having you on. I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and educating me on all the stuff I am not good at. It's been a lot of fun and you're an amazing person, so keep up the great work. Thank you so much. It was really fun and hopefully we are all learning about this together. So don't get yeah. discouraged. Uh, we all will make a mistake and we will say the inappropriate thing. So the most important piece is just keep learning about it. Thank you so much. It was super fun to talk to you. Thanks.